Turn to Philippians chapter 2. As we engage God's word this morning, I want to dispel a common notion. There seems to be this belief out there that Easter is a highly theological in nature kind of season, and that Christmas is more about sentimentality. I've never heard anybody actually voice it like that, but I've heard many pastors over the years tell me how difficult it is to come up with fresh content each year on Christmas because everybody has heard it already they say. And I've heard some of the most theological sermons of my life regarding why Christ had to die. But I've actually, in my years of being a Christian, which aren't all that many, I I didn't get saved that long ago. But in my years of being a Christian, I've never been in a service where they theologically broke down why Christ had to come and be born. I mean, seriously, have you ever just sat in wonder on the truths of Christmas and said, why did it have to be done this way? Why did the Christ have to be born of a virgin? Why did God have to come and put on flesh? Why did a king have to be born in such a lowly manner? And the question that I found myself wondering, which plunged me deep into the theological roots of Christmas, is couldn't God have done it another way? After all, he's God. Shouldn't God be able to do anything he wants to? Why did he have to do it in the way that he did it? Easter is really easy to be deeply theological about as you go deep into God's word and you celebrate such truths as the atoning work of Christ, the penal substitutionary nature of his death on the cross, the resurrection of Christ and what it means to be risen in him, our union with Christ, where you celebrate those two little words that Paul decorates across all of his epistles, in him, and what it means to be in the risen Christ and our new nature in Christ. And I could keep going easily, but you could do a whole series on just one of those topics. Like seriously, you could do a whole... Um, Lent series on just any one of those theological topics. I've taken whole seminary courses just on one of those theological topics. My point in bringing it up is that Christmas is every bit as theological as Easter and without the truths of the hypostatic union, which if you don't know what that is, that's what the whole sermon is going to be about, and I'm going to explain it. Without the truths of the hypostatic union on Christmas, we can never celebrate the truths that we celebrate on Easter. They are inseparably linked. So, so much for Christmas being theological sentimentality weak sauce, because that's just not the truth. It, it, it would, I thought it would be special to close out our year where we began in the church. If you're visiting with us, This church, Redeemer Fellowship, is a new work that was born on Easter this year. And as we go through, we went through a series on Philippians chapter 2, and as we come to the end of this year that has moved at a breakneck speed, I've never been in a year that has moved as fast as 2016. Um, So we come to the end of this year. I thought Philippians 2 would be a great place to come and savor our Savior and to celebrate 
him. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to do my best to explain to you why Christ had to put on flesh on that Christmas morning. And I'm going to read our passage and then ask seven questions of the passage. That's really all I'm going to do. I'm going to show you that what I'm going to do is something that you could do yourself in personal Bible study at home. I'm going to ask seven questions of the passage that we're going to look at that show us why the Word had to put on flesh, then I'm going to show you seven aspects of the nature of Christ, and then seven things that the humility of Christ show us about ourselves from this passage. So look with me, starting in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. It should also be projected up behind me if you don't have a Bible. And there's Bibles in the front of the seats. If you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you today. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I just pray that you would bless the preaching of your inspired word this morning. God, soften our hearts, meet us here, And let us see Jesus as big and great as we leave this place. Hide me behind your cross so that my tomfoolery would not get in the way of what you want to do here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a lot of different directions that we could go with this passage. This passage is just so deep and so rich. But for our purposes this morning, let's start down in verse 6. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of of God. Going again back to verse 6, it says, Who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God as something to be grasped. It is a clear statement that the baby that was born on that first Christmas morn would be deity, that he would be God in the flesh. And though it's as clear as you go through the passage and begin to understand the argumentation that Paul's making through the passage, It can be a little bit confusing if you don't understand the argument that Paul is making here. Why does it say form rather than just saying that he was, in fact, God, very God? Because it's pointing to the mystery that took place on that first Christmas morning. On the day of Christ's birth, the God who was beyond any form came and put on a form, and he put on the form of man. The reason that they use form of God is to, tr- is to contrast his pre-existent form with the form that he took when he came and put on flesh. It's pointing out the fact that the creator came and took on the form of those whom he created. 
Other places, the creator and the created are referred to as the potter and the clay, such as Romans chapter 9. So maybe to help you understand what Paul is doing here in Philippians 2, set your mind on that analogy in Romans chapter 9. And that terminology may prove helpful. And on the Christmas morning, the potter left his position at the potter wheel to take on the form of the clay that he was molding to begin with. How amazing is that? I mean, the, the, the whole point that I want to get theological with you is to give you a foundation to be amazed at the person of Jesus here in this Advent season. The potter loves you so much that he left his place as potter to come and be one of the pots so that he could take a bunch of cracked pots and redeem them and bring them back to the Father. I would encourage you to just spend a whole day meditating on that truth alone. That truth should blow your mind. And if it would help you, we've made Advent devotionals there in the back that follow and track the whole, all uh, five sermons that will be in this series. And take that with you. It's a little leaflet that you can stick in your Bible and use for your devotions during this season. Second question is, what does it mean that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped? It means that Jesus was more than happy to lower himself rather than grasp at every single last thing that he was entitled to. This is not saying that Jesus did not have equality with God. It's saying that he laid aside his ability to be recognized as co-equal with the Father. This is a doctrine that theologians have long known as functional subordination, meaning that he was not in any way lesser than the Father, but he lowered himself below the Father so that he could manifest the glory of the Father and radiate the Father to a fallen world that did not know him. Through Jesus, I mean, though Jesus was equal with the Father, he submitted himself to the Father's will in order that he might glorify his father. Jesus was completely equal with the father in nature, attributes, and entitled to the same worship of the father. We say that in the creeds that, that make up the foundational aspects of our faith. And though Jesus was entitled to anything and everything, he became nothing that first Christmas morning so that we could become everything in him who were once nothing. I mean, how amazing is that reality? It's interesting that I often hear older folks refer to millennials as the entitlement generation. How many of you has that come out of your mouth this week of? I mean, it's, it's just been running rampant. Okay, well, if I had a dollar for every time I heard those of you that raised your hands use the words entitlement generation, I would buy you a Bible with a mirror on it so that you could see that you are in fact, and every generation in fact, since Adam and Eve has felt that they were entitled to more and they failed to understand that Christ took what we deserve and gave us what he alone was entitled to. Christ took what we deserve and gave us what he alone was entitled to. Jesus is the only generation that didn't struggle with entitlement issues, okay? So it wasn't your generation and, oh, you lousy millennials, you entitled people. It's not like that. Because guess who else was entitled? 
Those who were created without sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, felt that for some reason, even though they were living in perfection in the garden, and God said, look, you have everything. You have one rule. Don't take this fruit from this tree. And they're like, well, we must be entitled to the fruit of that tree. When he said, don't touch it, that must mean that we're entitled to it. Except they didn't have an entitlement generation to blame it on like older folks do. So we saw his lack. <laughs> I love you. I'm just I'm playing. Come on. <laughs> you got to. We've been taking shots from the older folks through this whole election season, and we've got to be able to give it back to you once in a while. <laughs> but we saw his lack of entitlement on that first Christmas morning. There's nothing about the Christmas story that speaks entitlement whatsoever. He left his entitlements so that he could come and show us the love of the Father. Third question, what does it mean that he emptied himself, and what did he empty himself of? Look in verse 7. This is something that theologians have long called the kenosis. But he emptied himself. That word emptied is the Greek term kenosis. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. This is one of the most difficult questions and most difficult verses in the entire Bible. And you have to approach this verse with tact and with humility and with great care unless you end up preaching heresy to your people. You have to have a Jesus that was fully God and fully man at the same time, or else you have a Jesus that is not mighty to save you, and you have a Jesus that is in no way the Jesus that was written about in the Bible. This is the wonder of the incarnation, that he has to be both fully God and fully man at the same time. It's not like he was half God, and then half God met up with a 50% of half man, and they became 100% of a being that was born in the manger. No, the awesome reality of the incarnation is that somehow this little baby, wrap your minds around this, this baby that was in a womb, was both 100% God and both 100% man at the same time without canceling out the attributes of the other one. If that's not hard to wrap your mind around, you're lying. I mean, that should be like one of those truths that you just keep going back to and back to and thinking about it and be like, wow, our God is so big. These are the kind of truths that should leave you in wonder. Like, how can you be fully God and fully man? When did it happen? When he was a fetus? Was he fully God? That's one that I've often wondered. Like, what's it like being the God of the universe inside of a womb? And that's wild to think about. But God put that stuff there so that we could have really cool stuff to be able to wrap our minds around and be left in wonder. But you still have to deal with the fact that Paul says that he emptied himself of something in verse 7. So let me give you a few examples of some of the things that theologians over the years that are much smarter than me have said that he emptied himself of. He emptied himself of the awesome glory that he possesses. Think about this. The Apostle John was one of the very first people that Jesus called. John knew Jesus. He was known as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Yet in Revelation chapter 1, when John, who was very familiar with Jesus, saw Jesus and all of his risen glory, it says, And behold, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He saw his glory and just, just fell out. I mean, that's how awesome his glory was, which means that in some respect, he must have been veiling that glory because not only did people not recognize that glory, but they thought that he was worthy to be nailed to a cross when at any point he could have just let that Shekinah glory glow right out of him and just the radiance that we sang about in Silent Night would have been enough to just blast everybody that tried to arrest him in the garden. It's funny, when I hear people try to leverage titles of authority within churches, I often think of the fact that people will often throw the, hey, I'm the pastor card, so do what I said. But I'm like, Jesus didn't even throw the, I'm the Jesus card, when he could have. So who are we to think that there's earthly titles to be able to cast around to try to theologically big-time people? That's a bunch of shenanigans. Another thing that he emptied himself of was the honor that he was due. I mean, Jesus was worthy of the entire world falling on their face when he was born. But instead, he was born in the middle of a field with just a bunch of nobodies, a ragtag bunch of weirdos that were there to worship him that first Christmas morning, which is why I've always, no matter how many churches I plant, I got to be involved in a couple of them before I moved here to the Jersey Shore to start planting churches. I want every church that I ever plant to just be a bunch of ragtag bunch of weirdos. Because that's what you see worshiping Jesus. When do you ever see clean, polished up people in the presence of Jesus? Clean, polished up people nailed Jesus to a cross. It's the ragtag bunch of weirdos that were always found just in awe of who he was. He also emptied himself of the ability to be recognized as the pre-existent king. I mean, even when he tried to claim that he was the pre-existent king in John chapter 5 and John chapter 8, it says, you're not even 40 years old and you're claiming that you've seen Abraham? And he's just like, you don't even know. Before Abraham existed, I was. I mean, if they didn't recognize it at that, then they had no clue what a baller Jesus really was. Another thing he emptied himself was the only life that he had ever known. It says later on in the passage that Jesus left the right hand of the Father, which is where he had been seated for his entire life, and it came down to this mess of a situation that we created so that he could ransom us out of the marketplace of slavery that we set ourselves in bondage to. One of the coolest Greek words, if you ever want to do a word study, is the word ransom, eneragazo, which means to go and purchase somebody out of the market of slavery and take them and no longer make them a slave, but be the vessel of a new master. What a beautiful, beautiful term. And the pre-existent king came and did that that first Christmas morning, leaving the only place he had ever known. He also emptied himself of the ability to exercise certain divine attributes. I mean, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge in Luke chapter 2, which to me is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to try to understand. Have you ever just sat, and it's a Christmas verse, it's a, it's a verse about young Jesus right after he was born, and it's saying, how does the one who knows everything who created all knowledge that could possibly be known, grow in the knowledge that he created. This should blow your mind. 
That should be like... He also emptied himself, lastly, of the... He emptied himself of his own life at the cross. I mean, that's what this all culminated of. He said, nobody can take my life from me, lest I lay it down. And that, in fact, he did at the cross on Easter. Question four, what does it mean that he was born in the form of a servant from verse seven? This is probably the verse in this passage that most clearly points to the Christmas story. This is one of those verses that to fully appreciate it, you have to take off the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian history. If you've been in the church for any period of time, you know that being called a servant is something that is meant as a compliment. But we live in a world where servitude and slavery are not normative in front of us. So 2,000 years ago, it was not a compliment when 75% of the Roman Empire in which Jesus was born were slaves to be known and identify yourself as a slave. It was a compliment to be known as a free man. But it says that he did not come as a free man, but he came and he took on the form of a slave for us. So the idea of God taking on the form of a servant was something that people would not have been able to wrap their minds around. He demonstrated that he was a servant in the way that he was born. He was born not only a peasant, but more lowly than a a peasant, and a lowly one at that. Even most servants were at least able to give birth in a home. I mean, they didn't didn't get the, the advantage of just going to a nice shiny hospital like we can go to, but they at least had a home or, a, or an inn or something to be able to give birth at. But to give birth in a barn and then take this new God-man child and stick him in a feeding trough to be his cradle would be absolutely unheard of and untenable to the people that were trying to wrap their minds around it. He was also not a ser- only a servant in his birth, he was a servant in his life. His life was a life of servitude. He even said it. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom to many, which reminds us that he was a servant in his death. So he was a servant in his birth. He was a servant in his life. He was a servant in his death, which he died in order to reconcile a fallen race back to the Father. How great is our God? Amen? Fifth question. What does it mean that he was born in the likeness of man? Look with me at verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a doctrine that theologians know as the hypostatic union, which in my opinion is... Uh, tied for first is the most difficult doctrine in the whole Bible to fully wrap your mind around and try to comprehend along with the Trinity. If you think that you can fully grasp the true totality of the hypostatic union of Christ, then either you're a liar or you have not seen the fullness of the beauty of this truth. Anybody ever see one of those stained glass windows where Jesus is flashing this symbol and he's like, me and, me and my wife did a, a tour of all of the ancient churches in Rome, and I saw on all the stained glass windows, you got Jesus, and 
He's all like, and I'm like, yo, what's up with gang symbol Jesus? Why is Jesus like flashing gang symbols to, in all these stained glass windows? And that's what I thought it was. I, I, so um, it's really beautiful. I thought it was just some silly old religious thing that didn't really have any purpose. And what that was for is before there were Bibles, it was a pictorial evidence that Jesus was one of three persons of the Trinity manifested by his three fingers put together and that he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. So this God child was fully God, fully man, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost coming together. Let me see. I want to see. I want a church-wide flashing of gang symbols. Come on. Flash them. Don't, don't be proud. Jesus could do it. You could do it. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible. And Christmas is when the hypostatic union took place. It's when Jesus came on, put on flesh. There were things that were known as Christophanies in the Old Testament in which Jesus would come and appear in the flesh, but only for a momentary period of time, and then he would just disappear. And stories like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or when Joshua is about to draw his sword and then he just falls at the radiance of this guy's feet. And, but then he'd always be gone. Christmas was the first time that he just put on flesh and he stayed and he dwelt until mankind killed him. Sixth question. I'm going to start to bring down the theology from up here a little bit and start to bring it down to a practical level. So question six is, what does all this show us about the nature of God? And what I want to do is give you seven uh, truths that Christmas shows us about the true nature of God. The first is that God was not concerned about appearances. He didn't care how his birth appeared. He didn't care that he appeared too lowly for other people to be able to worship. In fact, he chose that that was the way that he would appear to a fallen world. It was a stumbling block to many, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Another truth that we see about God is that Jesus was more concerned about the Father's glory than his own. And what a beautiful truth. The co-equal God came and he lowered himself as a bondservant so that he could radiate the glory of his heavenly Father, who he has always existed with in perfect fellowship since before the existence of time. I mean, absolutely just tremendous. A, a third truth that we see about it is that Jesus was not fixated on getting his equal share of the pie and he did not get caught up in fair world. It is, is it fair that Jesus had to come and die? Is it fair that Jesus had to leave the glories of heaven above? I, just by way of confession, at one time had a weak theological view that it was like, why does Jesus have to come and do this? This doesn't seem fair. Why did he have to come and lower himself and take on the fullness of God's wrath? But then I tried to wrap my mind backwards around Isaiah 53, where it said that the Father was pleased to crush him, that in doing so, he would become a ransom of the many. Wrap your mind around that. Any parent here, wrap your mind around that truth, and when you try to, I don't know which one was harder. The fact that Jesus came on and took the fullness of the wrath of humanity of all time and bore all of it upon of his shoulders and said, it is finished, or if the Father had to place that wrath 
on his son and crush him beyond anybody ever being crushed. As a parent, I just find that absolutely impossible to wrap my brain around. So it was, in my thoughts, equally difficult for both the father and the son. A fourth truth is that Jesus was willing to empty himself so that empty people could be full. How beautiful is that? That Jesus who possessed the fullness and the radiance of God's glory, as Paul says in in Colossians, that he was the fullness of deity in bodily form, that he was willing to empty himself so that a bunch of empty people could be full. And and when I look around and I just see all of the empty people walking around, I just, that's why evangelism shouldn't be something that we have to beat you into and be like, go do the work of an evangelist. We should just be able to see intuitively if we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead living inside of us. People are empty. But Christ emptied himself so that they didn't have to be. And when you start to look at evangelism like that, it becomes much less of a have-to, and it becomes a get-to. Like, I get to tell these people, you don't have to live an empty life anymore because Jesus poured out himself so that your emptiness could become the fullness of God as you take on more and more of Christ. The fifth truth that you see about the nature of God is that God came on the scene as a servant, not one to be served. And I'll get into that more in a moment. But God easily could have just evaporated the whole human race at any time. But instead, he came and it was a servant to people who mocked him, who spit on him, and who ultimately took his very life. A sixth truth that you see about the nature of God is that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. And because he was fully God and fully man, he understands our weaknesses and frailties. Therefore, as Hebrews says, he is a sympathetic high priest and we can come to him when we are in need boldly before the throne of grace because he gets it. He was like us in every way, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And the last truth that we see before I give you some practical things to take home is just as Jesus was not concerned about his glory but the Father's and his second coming, it says that the Father is going to make sure that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, meaning that the Father is then going to manifest the glory of Jesus at his second advent. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. So our our final question, our seventh and final question to give you some practical stuff to think about as you leave here is what does all of this show us about ourselves? So seven truths that the nature of God on Christmas show us about ourselves. And there's a saying that one of my favorite theologians uses. It's that we should take every imperative and ground it in a gospel indicative. Meaning that anytime you tell somebody you need to do this, you have to ground it in you need to do this because this is what Christ has done to enable you to do this because you couldn't do it unless Christ did it first. And he is the hope in you, the power of glory. 
And when people mess that up, and when they get it backwards, and they just start giving you a bunch of imperatives without grounding it in the gospel indicatives, then what that preaching ends up being is you end up hearing a whole lot about what you should go and do, but very little about what Christ has come and done to empower you to be able to go and do it, meaning that you have a gospel that's powerless to give you the life to manifest God's glory in and through your life. So seven truths, because of the indicatives of what God has done, we can live out these imperatives. Since God was not concerned about appearances, we should not live a life that's concerned with keeping up appearances. What are you more concerned about? Being sold out to Christ or appearing like you're sold out to Christ? If you're here and you're trying to keep up appearances, look at the manger and look at the cross and realize that if God didn't come and try to keep up appearances, why on earth would we come and try to keep up appearances. And I think that's more relevant than any time during this time of year at Christmas where so many people do so many things that are obligatory. Why do we do obligatory things? Well, because this person might think this or that of me if I don't. So therefore, appearances sake. A second truth that we see, and you'll notice a common thread. All I'm doing is taking the threads that were true about God and seeing how we can live them out in our lives. Jesus was more concerned about the Father's glory than his own, so we should be more concerned about the Father's glory than our own glory. The term glory, kibod in Hebrew, means weightiness or substantialness. What is most weighty and substantial in your life? Is it about you or is it about God? That's where you'll know where your glory truly resides and who you spend your life glorifying. A third truth is Jesus was not fixated on getting his equal share of the pie and he didn't get caught up in fair world, so therefore we should not get caught up in fair world. If I had a dollar for every time somebody acted the clown because they felt like they were not getting what was due to them or the things that were fair, I would be a rich man. Um, Instead, we should be cultivating lives of gratitude that God took what we were due and he gave us what he was due instead of giving us what we deserve. When that's on your mind, all of a sudden fair is no longer the guiding principle of your life. A fourth truth is that Jesus was willing to empty himself so that others could be full. And I want to ask you a real question. When is the last time that you emptied yourself so that somebody else other than you could have fullness? That's not a hypothetical question. And if nothing comes to mind when I ask it, it's been too long. A fifth question is Jesus came on the scene as a servant, not as one to be served. So therefore, shouldn't we live our lives as servants and not as consumers who wait around to be served? Look, I'm just going to be real with you for a second. I have zero patience for Christian consumers who never serve but only seek to be served. Zero patience for them. I have tons of patience for non-Christians, but Christian consumers are a cancer to the body of Christ. Let's just be real and call it what it is. A healthy church is a church that can see that and does not chase their tail in circles trying to placate a handful of consumers 
when there's a dying world out there in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't believe how much ministry is done to keep consumers happy. You'll never keep consumers happy. That's the whole principle of consumerism. If you could keep consumers happy, there would be no Madison Avenue. There would be no advertising agencies. The whole reason there's advertising agencies is to convince you you are not happy unless you have this. And then you're like, wow, if I have that, then I'll be complete. If you are a Christian and not a servant, I would be curious what you do with verses 7 and 8 and how you could possibly say that your life is being lived in obedience. Church needs to stop catering to Christian consumers and realize that their time would be invested better letting them walk out the door until they repent. Sixth truth is because he was fully God and fully man, he understands our weaknesses and our frailties, so we should be free to present him with our weaknesses and our frailties. Did you know that Christmas is statistically the number one time of year for addicts to fall back into their addictions? I mean, read any literature on relapses. It's the number one time of year in which people relapse back into their addictions. And what that says to me is that people are feeling weak or frail, but they feel like they have to go to a substance rather than go to the Father with their frailties. Look, if you're turning to anything other than your Father to meet you in the areas of your weakness, you will not ever find satisfaction, and I promise you, you will remain restless. Augustine prayed 1,600 years ago, Father, let my heart remain restless until it learns to rest in Thee. And I pray that for you guys regularly. When I see somebody just spinning their wheels, trying to trust in something other than their Heavenly Father to meet a satisfaction that can only be met in Him, I'm like, Lord, bring them to their knees. And help them to see that restlessness will be the characteristic that marks their life until they learn to rest in you, Jesus. Look, there's no shame in being frail or weak. Jesus knew that we were frail and weak. But if you're a Christian, you have a daddy that understands your frailties and your weaknesses. So lean into him and run to him and look to no other place to meet your weaknesses. And the last truth I want to look at is that Jesus was not concerned about his own glory, but the Father's. And in his second coming, the Father is going to show us the glory of Jesus. So the only conclusion to this passage is the one that Paul comes to, that as we look at these truths, we should say, Hallelujah, and every knee will bow and confess that you are Lord the glory of God the Father. One of the questions people ask me most often is, can Jesus be somebody's Savior and not be their Lord? And, and I'm not trying to dog on anybody for asking that question. I understand why they ask that question, because usually what they're asking it for is saying, I have this loved one that I care about deeply, and they've said that they accepted him as Savior, but there's no Lordship of Christ over their life. Not a terrible question. It's just not the best question. The reason being that Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. The Father did that, according to verse 11. So the better question is, what is preventing you from recognizing that Jesus is Lord, even though you call him Savior? So as we close, I want to ask you the most eternally significant question that could possibly be asked is, has your knee bowed to the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
And I want to tell you, folks, that's not something that we just do once. I mean, salvation is a one-time transaction. We're justified in Him. We are presented justified in Him and complete forever. But bowing your knee before the Lordship of Christ is something that we do over and over and over. This should be the posture of a Christian life. This should be the way you walk through this fallen world, just bowing your knee over and over and saying, you are Lord and I am not. So if you're here and you've never embraced him as your savior, I ask you, with the pa- there, there should be never a passionless plea for the gospel. I ask you with the passion of a dying man, What's keeping you? Know that you will bow your knee. It says that everybody on earth, everybody in heaven, and there's the unfortunate conclusion that even everybody under the earth, they're all going to bow their knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you do it before we meet him, when we see him, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We long to live for that day. Amen? Jesus, thank you that at your second advent that you are going to come not as a baby but as a warrior. But those of us who have embraced you as Lord will be able to enjoy the fullness of the riches of your glorious grace and mercy forever and ever. Amen.